Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. What we saw in our last time, in our last study when we were together, was verse 9, that Naomi had this genuine love. We're really entering into the home of Naomi here with this relationship that she has with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi loved her Moabite daughters-in-law as she said to them in verse 9, The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you. That's a very important phrase she uses, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice. See, when Naomi said to them, each of you, when she prayed for them, grant you, it just wasn't a half-hearted prayer. It wasn't a ritual. It wasn't like a traditionalistic type prayer. But she looked at each of them as individuals. She didn't see Orpah and Ruth as just Moabites, part of the them, the Moabites. She saw them as the each of you. She saw them as the individuals. She saw them as real people crystallized in her mind. Orpah and Ruth, whom God had created. She saw them whom God loved. And what she said to them in verse 9 reflected this love and this respect that Naomi had for them. And if you and I are going to be effective in bringing the lost people to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to have that spirit that Naomi has. We have to see not this amorphous group of people who we call unbelievers that are different from us or the lost that are not part of us but in or that other group that's going to hell you and I will need to see them not as the non-elect that God has no interest in saving and bringing to heaven but you and I have to be like Naomi where we see them as individuals for who they are like Naomi did like when she said each of them and if you ask Naomi to describe her daughters-in-law she would never say well they're just Moabites like all those other Moabites like all the other heathen they don't know God they'll die without knowing God because they're Moabites she never would say that about Orpah and Ruth and she would say I know them. I know Orpah. They're individuals, each one of them. I know Orpah and Ruth. And she opens up her heart to them. And that's what we're seeing here in this verse. And she says to the individuals, and she prays for them with a real heartfelt sincerity. She sees them as individuals and she treats them. The way she treats them is like a challenging example to us of how we should treat the lost. So at verse 9, we feel this love. That's between Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. And in verse 9, we can see Naomi. She's looking at them. She's got tears in her eyes. And she does the most that she can do for anyone that she sees starting to drift away from contact, which is the same that anyone can do for someone who they see as drifting away out of our contact, out of reach. Naomi's husband has died, as we've seen. Her two sons had died. Her daughter-in-laws were still young, and they were able to marry another, and they would be Moabites, husbands. And Naomi knew that. And Naomi also knew that, you know, if they as Moabites come into the land of Israel... They're going to have a very hard time. Nobody's going to want to marry them. They're going to be outcasts. And so she's saying to them, look, 
I can't stay here any longer in Moab. Moab is the enemy country of the Jews. Her daughters-in-law needed to move on with their lives, and she could not expect her daughters-in-law to take care of her in the house of, of their new Moabite husbands. And so Naomi has to return to the land of Israel. That's where she belonged. That was where her people were. And so with tears in her eyes, what does she do? She looks at them, and she prays for them. She pours out her heart in a beautiful blessing, a prayer to them as she prays to Jehovah Jesus. And she prays and she asks him, Lord, please grant from heaven that they would find husbands and that they would have a home of of peace and rest. And so she prays that they'd find the right husbands. And then we read of their love and the love that they had for each other in verse 9 where it says, then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and wept. They just cried. It was just, it was sad. It was a very sad time as they're crying out loud together. But then we see in verse 10, it says, And they said unto her, so Orpah and Ruth said unto Naomi, Surely, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. So Orpah and Ruth had said at this point that we've made up our minds. We're going to go back with you to your people. And this shows a great human love that Orpah and Ruth, that they had for Naomi. Great human love. But notice what they said in verse 10. And the key to understanding what Orpah and Ruth said, Naomi, is found in the words, with thee. So in other words, verse 10, they said unto her, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. It was all about with thee. The message they were sending was with thee. Their statement was with thee. And they're saying, we love you so much, Naomi. We love you so much that for us, we're going to be on a mission of with thee. We're going to go with you. Wherever you go, we're going. They had resolved that they were going to go with Naomi because of this strong human love that they had for Naomi. Now, Naomi got that message. She heard them say that with thee. So now when we look at verse 11, we see that Naomi is now responding to the with thee message. And she says, and Naomi said, turn again, my daughters, for why will you go with me? Are there yet any sons in my room and so forth like that? So she's saying, I know what you're saying with thee. And in response, Naomi now challenges them with this question, why? Why will you come with me? Why would you do that? Now, if Orpah and Ruth did not have a good response to Naomi's, why will you go with me, then Orpah and Ruth would not go with Naomi. It was just that simple. So Naomi is very wise to challenge them with the why will you go with me challenge. You know, there were those who said to the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll follow you. We want, I want to follow you. But like Naomi, the Lord Jesus Christ also gave those people the why will you go with me uh, question. And we see that in Matthew 8, 19 through 20, where it speaks about in that passage a certain scribe. Now, it was not that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't want this man to follow him. It was that he only wanted to follow him if he followed him as God. And in the same way, it was not 
It was not that Naomi did not want Orpah and Ruth to follow her. Naomi only wanted Orpah and Ruth to follow her if they were ready to go beyond just the human love and to know that it was a matter of a deeper love than that. Naomi pressed onto this issue. She pressed, Naomi pressed this issue on them. It was the issue of your future. It was the issue of having a husband. It was the issue of having a home. It was the issue of having children. And she was saying to them, you come with me, you won't, you won't, you won't. And she didn't, it wasn't as, she didn't want Orba to follow because she didn't want them to go back to return, as she put it to her, their gods. Because she knew that that was going to be spiritual suicide for them. But she knew that if her daughters-in-law had decided to follow her to the land of her God, then they would have to pay a very heavy price. No husbands, no homes, no children. Life was going to be very hard for them. So in verses 12 through 13, she's pressing on them sore, pressing them hard. Now, then Naomi, she finishes her very strong statement in verse 13, where she says, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. That's a very hard statement that Naomi has just made there. It grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What Naomi is actually saying here is that she felt very sorry for them that God was against her because she saw that they were suffering because God was against Naomi. You know, Naomi could have said to him, I'm a jinx. <laughs> you don't want me. Maybe, you know, when, when you get her, you know, everything bad happens to people who are around me. You know, I, I, I lose my husband and then you lose your husbands because of me, because I'm the one. You know, so she's actually saying to them that I'm worse off than you are. This is what she's saying. And she's saying, look, you know, look at me. I'm old. You know, no, no, no. I, there's nobody. No man is going to want me for a wife. And I'm going to I'm just resigned to be alone for the rest of my life. And no one's going to take care of me. It's like the song this morning. They got a lot of tears. But there were there was a blessing in disguise with her blessings in disguise. But she didn't know it. But for Orpah and Ruth. She was saying, look, you're still young. You can attract a new husband. Life can start all over for you. But Naomi is saying that, look, you know, when you look at me, just think about death. You know, the part of the death of part of the my happiness died when I buried my husband and I stood over the grave and I felt part of my happiness buried in that grave with him. And then when your two husbands, my two sons died and I dug those graves, she said that was the rest of my happiness buried in those graves. So I I'm worse off than you are. It's really something. She should be a motivational speaker. <laughs> but for Orpah and Ruth, okay. So she's, she's saying all these things. And she's saying, no future, no future, no future with me. If you follow me, no future. It's very sad. It's very depressing. No future. Now, this is a classic picture here when you hear Naomi saying this of depression. Naomi is in a state of depression when she says, anybody who gets around me, it grieves me much because the Lord's hand, for your sakes, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now, sometimes you and I really feel the pressure of depression. Sometimes we fall into depression. But you know, God does not want us to stay in depression. God did not want 
Naomi to be in depression. Sometimes depression is the result, it can be many reasons, and sometimes the result of some sin that's not been confessed and not been forsaken, sometimes. And in that case, that sin just eats away at the soul like rust, and it drives the person into depression. And we should never, never, ever be deceived into thinking that depression is good. Depression is not good. Depression's normal. It's healthy. It's not normal. It's not healthy. Even clinicians recognize depression as a clinical disease. But God wants to bring a person out of depression, and he wants them to come out of depression because if a person doesn't come out of depression, eventually they'll come to hate God. Because to think that depression is normal is to develop a, it's like developing a taste for arsenic. I think it tastes pretty good. It's to love death. And that's how the Bible describes it in Proverbs 8.36 where it says, But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. See, God is, not, God is nothing to get depressed about. God is not to get depressed about. Depression is the state of, actually, it's a state of complaining. It's a state of acting out, complaining, or murmuring against God. And when people lose their will to live, their fight to live, and they just give up, they die. Because death and destruction are Satan's realm. And life and building up is God's realm. And that's why it says in John 10, 10, the Lord says, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, they might have it more abundantly. Depression, as we said, just like fear, it doesn't stand still. It is not stagnant. It has a goal. The goal of depression is to kill and destroy. And that's why when the FBI did their investigation of the Columbine killers in the high school there, and they found that Eric Harris, who was one of the Columbine high school killers, they found that he had scheduled meetings with his psychiatrist and that he he complained of depression and anger and suicidal thoughts, and his doctor put him on the antidepressant drug Zoloft. And the FBI also found that his accomplice, Claybold, he also suffered from depression. So when the FBI was studying all these, these, these school shootings, they concluded that what was common among the school, these killers in the schools was depression. Depression that led to feelings of helplessness. Depression that led to feelings of fear, of insecurity, that led to feelings of suicide and eventually the desire to kill others. Depression is not of God. It's not from God. David did get depressed several times with his situations, but he got himself out of his depressions by a simple strategy that he gave to us several times, and it worked every time for David. It was his fix-all for depression. And to say that David was depressed and to say that that's an excuse for staying in depression is to fail to see that David got himself out of depression. And what's important for us is to see, how did he do that? How did David get himself out of depression? First of all, David didn't use the word depression. He called it being, he called it my soul is cast down. It's cast down. So every time he recognized that his soul was cast down or depressed, we can see David, he goes over to his medicine. First, he goes over to his bathroom. He looks in his mirror and he says, you're cast down, soul. And he opens up his medicine cabinet and he gets these. And here's what he says in Psalm 42.5. Why art thou cast down, 
O my soul, why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And then in Psalm 42, 11, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance. In Psalm 43, 5, same thing. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. See, three times over in the Psalms, the same pattern is shown here. And so what we see here is the steps that David took to get himself out of the depression. First, we see that David identified the problem. He looked it square in the face and he said, cast down depression. And when David was downhearted, he was discouraged, he determined he's not gonna stay there. And so he never took the position, well, I'm sad, I'm depressed, God is sovereign, he controls everything, must be the will of God, I have to stay in the state of depression. No, it wasn't David. He didn't do that. He didn't sit down and give up. That wasn't David. The first thing he did, he looks at his sadness, he looks at his gloomy disposition, and he says, I have depression, which he called this casting down the soul. He labels it. He labels his condition. Second thing David does is that he determines to get out of it. And this he did by looking at his, his depression square in the face, pointing his finger at it, the challenging word, and he says, why? Why are you cast down, oh my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? So he didn't say, well, you know, there's a reason. He said, there's no reason to get depressed. There's no reason to be in feeling the dumps, and I've determined to not to stay there. So he starts out with this question, why, why? And the first step to getting out of depression is to grab the reins of the runaway stagecoach and, whoa, bring it to a halt. Bring it to a halt and stop the fear going on fear and the worry going on worry. And so if there's a sin that needs to be confessed and forsaken, God's left the door open to the altar. The door to the altar is left open in 1 John 1, 9. It's God's open door. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's a, that, that's the nature of God, to leave the door open to the altar. That's in essence what he was saying in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 when he was proclaiming his name to, to Moses. It says, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Or sometimes depression is not because of sin. It's the result of just being overwhelmed with grief. And in that case, depression needs to be confronted again with the question, why? Because God has done everything to take care of us and to take us out of depression. You know, if after the fall, if after the fall of man, God had said, you know, I'm finished with man. I gave them the chance and they failed. I'm forsaking them. Then, you know, if he said, you, you got what you deserved, you made your bed, now lie in it, and I'm not providing you any salvation, I'm not providing you any way out of your sin and despair, then we'd have something to be depressed about. That we'd have something to be depressed about. But God didn't do that. He's done just the opposite. And when he did that, he started on a course to take us out of depression and despair so that we have every reason to be in a state 
of quite the opposite that's described in Philippians 4.4. To be in a state of rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice evermore. Rejoicing, that's the opposite of depression. So David's first step in getting out of depression is to confront it with why. You know, Ellie Maxwell was invited years ago in the 20s by a, a Presbyterian farmer, of all people, to come to Three Hills, Alberta, Canada, and start a formal Bible training, which he later called Prairie Bible Institute, and to train Christian workers. And he went there in 1922. They only had eight students. And that school became second only to Moody Bible Institute for the number of missionaries that it generated. Pastor Jim went to there. And Ellie Maxwell had six children. And one day his son and his daughter-in-law and their children were driving back there in Three Hills, and it was a very slippery, snowy road, and they lost control of the car, and they had a collision, and the whole family was killed. His son, his daughter, everybody's killed. And so Ellie Maxwell, at the funeral, he gets up to speak, and he says, I was thinking that I should be depressed today, he said. <laughs> this is him. He said, I was thinking that I should be depressed today, so I sat down and I thought of the reasons why I should be depressed. And I said, and he said, I thought of my son and their family, and they've all been tragically killed, but then I couldn't help but thinking, but now they're all in heaven, and they're all rejoicing before my Savior. So I just want to tell you, he says, I just want to tell you, I tried very hard to get depressed, and I just couldn't do it, and he sat down. <laughs> He could not have gotten, he couldn't get depressed over the tragic deaths of his son and his family because he did what David did. He said, why? Why? And when he looked at the situation logically, considered where they are now, he realized, you know, I've got a choice. I can either listen to the devil's voice that's saying, all is lost, all is woe, it's bad and getting worse. You can, like Naomi, the hand of the Lord is against me. Or he could listen to the competing voice of God who's saying, all is well, all is fine, it's just going to get better. The path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more onto the perfect day. And he makes a decision. And he says, I'm going to stop listening to the voice of the devil, seeking to drive me into depression. And he's going to be stood firm, and he's going to listen to the voice of God instead. Job's wife said something very interesting. There's a person who had a, maybe you could say he's got a reason to be depressed. Job does. He lost a lot. And, but Job's wife, with the voice of depression, when Job lost everything, she said to him in Job 2.9, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Now, in that verse, Job's wife used a very revealing word in regard to depression. She used the word in our English that says retain, and retain. That's the word for chazak, the Hebrew word, chazak. And that word is extensively used throughout the Bible. And it means to not give up. It means to hold on tight. It's kind of like you could talk about it almost as a chazak hold. It's a real tight grip. It's a hold on to life. It has that meaning, a holding on to life. That's why Job's wife was telling Job to let go of your chazak hold on God and just curse God and die. It's wearing you out. To let go of the chazak hold is to give in to depression. It's not easy to fight against depression. It's not easy at all. It's to, it takes strength. It's tiring. It's a chazak hold. And to let hold of this chazak hold is to just give in to death's pull. It's to die. God told Hagar 
that Hagar had got to the point out there when she was with her son Ishmael. She'd been um, sent out of Abraham's house into the desert. And she took her son, uh, Ishmael, and she kind of put him off into a bush there. You know, you can think about casting him off. She said, I don't want to see the death of my child. So she let go of him. She put him there in the bush, and she went over away. She goes, you're going to die. And what God said to her in Genesis 21, 18 is very interesting. He said to her, arise, lift up the lad, and hold him, chazak. He said, hold on to that boy for his life. Lift up the lad and hold him chazak in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. So in that verse, we can see the the meaning of the word chazak. It means hold on for life. Don't give in to death. That's why Job's wife told Job, give up your chazak hold on God and die. Curse God and die. Yield to depression. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher Tom Cantor in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship. 